0: Uh, being up here uh, with you, Dr. Paulson. No, that would make me the burning bush. <laughs> that's I don't, right, I that's I don't right. like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've come to the point, and this happens often, and we've done these conferences now for uh, over 10 years where um, people come here with a variety of ideas. Um, some people get uh, sort of tricked into coming, not knowing what to expect. And these concepts of law and gospel um, can be, uh, at this point in the conference, can be Uh, sort of more solidified for some, more confusing for others, and what we want to do more than anything is help equip you um, to go into the world to be, as we've talked about, these uh, people who can actually have their burdens relieved and then, by extension, help relieve other people of these burdens. This isn't an exercise in sort of Um, you know, it's not an abstract exercise. It sounds abstract at times, and academic theology can get very obtuse, but what our heart is, is that as people who have, as it were, seen Jesus, like Andrew bringing his brother, like we want you to come and be people who are similarly healed and then become healers in that very way. And so, to that end, I wanted to... um, Begin by asking Dr. Paulson, and, and also invite you all to ask questions. If one of, the, you know, the, I always say at the end of these when I give uh, talks about it, that if you have something that is, that you're going to run screaming from here, like please don't. <laughs> you know, if there's something that you have to have addressed, then just stand up and ask. But uh, in preparation, I mean, in beginning this off, Dr. Paulson, in, as we leave, or as you've seen and heard the different discussions, um, without we're about reverting to sort of jargon, you know, like going out and sort of giving an academic <laughs> treaty. Like, how is it that we, we communicate this distinction between law and gospel for the sake
1: of our neighbor? Yeah, thanks, J.D. Uh, J.D. has been uh, a, 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 a great uh, friend over these many years, and uh, uh, I've learned uh, as much from him as he has from me. And in particular on how it is that we are working with this key matter uh, that we have found uh, in all of our speakers regarding distraction that then leads to what we call anxiety. And uh, Carrie's discussion about this, uh, Kelsey did the same thing, others of you have heard the same matter, that is when a soul becomes troubled, uh, it is experienced as anxiety, (laughs) And I remember when my mother once was undergoing surgery and she was very worried uh, herself, uh, not only about uh, whether she would uh, suffer in the matter of the surgery, but whether she would come through the surgery at all. Mm -hmm. And I went to her to give her a piece of scripture, which I thought uh, her son, who was going to seminary at the time, should do. And uh, the piece of scripture that I gave her was the very word that you were swimming around from Christ, have no anxiety about anything. And uh, I gave this to her uh, before she's going in uh, for (laughs) surgery, and it just increased the burden. (laughs) Uh, She said, well, now uh, what am I supposed to do with this because I've got… I I not only have the surgeon uh, here, but I've got Christ in my ear telling me not to have the anxiety, which of course I have and can't get rid of. That's my problem. This is what we actually mean by hearing a word as the law, and if you have Jesus come to you and say, have no anxiety about anything, the first thing that a sinner does with this is take it as a command, all right? Now, I've heard from my Lord, and he's telling me I have to do something. And the thing that I have to do is rid myself of this anxiety. And as Carrie pointed out, I finally discover if I'm going to rid myself of anxiety, I have to rid myself of myself. <laughs> I, how do I do this? I, I, can't, I, I can't get rid of this without getting rid of myself. Then uh, a great lesson was uh, taught to, uh, to me at that time. And I realized that when you heard Jesus say, have no anxiety about anything, Jesus has just been telling his disciples about the birds, no little bird falls uh, without uh, your Lord knowing, and so on and so forth. It's all full of promises. And when Jesus finally says this to his disciples, he's not giving them a command uh, to have no anxiety to reduce your anxiety, to get rid of your anxiety, don't carry it around. He is actually giving them a promise. The promise is I know you have anxiety. Now, here, you take this. Take this. This is no anxiety. This is where the no anxiety actually is. Well, take what? Take this particular promise that I give. Because anxiety always comes from the uncertainty of the future. So that before your future lies all sorts of possibilities and unknown things. And when the unknown and possibilities lay in front of you, uh, all sorts of disastrous ideas and pictures start to come into the mind about what could happen, uh, what may actually occur. And in particular, the, the problem of anxiety always goes back to the problem of a free will. A free will looks in front of itself, sees unlimited possibilities, and then says, now, how am I supposed to enter into this? How am I supposed to make my choices? How am I supposed to go this way and not that way? And so on, and the anxiety only increases. So Jesus says, here now, Let me remove from you the troubling problem, your free will. Let me take it away from you. In fact, let me take away all possibility from you. How do you like that? (laughs) No future possibility. I'm here to actually remove this from you. And I'm here to give you my necessity since God is an almighty God And when he bestows and gives his gift, this is the gift of the removal of the thing that causes you anxiety. And when you hold and cling to a particular promise, all of a sudden the thing that causes anxiety is no longer your responsibility. It is not your responsibility to make the proper choices in a world of infinite possibilities. And uh, suddenly you realize that the one who is actually in control of all of this is not you and your free will. It's Christ with his necessity of the promise. And he says, this promise is my will, and it will come to pass. Hmm. This is your certain future. This is the thing that actually now I'm giving to you which is the pill against all anxiety since now you say, uh, here, Christ, you now take my future. You now uh, be the one who actually establishes who I am. This is what it means to get a promise from Christ. Now, what do you do when you get a promise from Christ? And he says, here, have no anxiety. What do you do with it? What, uh, what, What do you make of something like that? Of what good to you is a promise here is where i recommend that you think about the most important promise that any of you have made or may make in your life it's the promise that you make uh, to your spouse at your wedding day and at your wedding day you will turn to your spouse and you will make a promise there and the moment of making a promise now is not the moments, a moment of you uh, opining about what you think love is. This is not the moment uh, where uh, you turn to your, your spouse-to-be you're just about to be married. Uh, and, uh, and you are now going to give your, your, uh, your promise and you start waxing eloquent about what love is. Well, you say, love is a many-splendored thing. It is a wonderful, wonderful joy, and isn't it great that God himself is love? And on and on you go, and then finally, she slaps you in the face and says, no, I want you to tell me that you love me, Uh, and in this particular case, and in this particular time, so that you give me a promise, which from now on, now that I have this little promise, I'm gonna use it. Now, how do you use a promise with your spouse? in times of trial, difficulty, trouble, what do you do with it? You turn back and say to him or her, you promised me. This is now the time when you deliver this particular promise, in sickness and in health, uh, so on. Then you turn around and you use the promise to make demands on the other, to actually provide what's been promised. This is what Christ means for you to do with a promise that He gives to you. And the promise He gives to you now is not for you to work on your inner anxiety. It is actually to take leave of all this by saying, now I'm in trouble, my anxiety is high, and you need to deliver. (laughs) You're the one now who has made the promise, and you need to come forward with this promise. This is what we mean in the Psalms by a lament that takes a promise from God and then turns around and makes demands of God to deliver on his promise. And when you start to learn this, then you actually uh, understand and uh, use the pill against anxiety, which is now to become a fighting Christian with fighting faith who demands uh, from God what he has promised in this time and in this place. And uh, here you, uh, you become uh, most active, though it is, of course, the promise that is given freely that actually produces this. It is not your free will that produces this. And the promise itself now makes a new, entirely new future that is established not on the uh, verities of your choices, which have often been very bad choices, and if you, once you've lived long enough, you look back at your long history of choices and you say, I, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not producing very good uh, choices along the way. But here now you understand that Christ has made his choice. This is why it says in uh, John chapter 8, it is not you who cho- choose me, but I choose you. When I do that, I give you a promise. When I give you a promise, I want you to use the promise. I want you to come back and demand that I do the work, not that you do the work, yeah. that I give you a future because the future I give you will not be uncertain and therefore fearful and full of anxiety. It will actually be a certain future. And the certain future is eternal life from the dead. This is, uh, this is a great gift and it begins in baptism itself where, as Paul says, you were not just given uh, an entry into the Christian church, but you were actually put to death in a death like Christ's and raised in a resurrection like Christ. And when this happens, it means from that moment on, you are going to live your life in reverse of everyone else. Hmm. Everyone else in the world lives their life now expecting death to come in the future. But for you, death is now in the past, and you are turning around to a future that does not have death in it. This gives you a tremendous freedom uh, and a way now of actually speaking to your Lord uh, uh, so that he will confirm or firm the promises. This is what we mean by faith, and faith becomes firm, especially in times of trial and difficulty. That's where the promise can really be unleashed uh, in a case like this. So this is what we call getting a promise, and using a promise. Mm. And the using of the promise is what we mean by a fighting faith. And uh, this is a a great gift for you. Now Jesus comes and says, here, take no anxiety. Mm. Don't produce it, but receive it now from the outside. And this is what we mean by the difference between hearing a command from Christ and actually hearing a promise. I
0: mean, that... Yeah, what he said. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly poignant, and this is, this is the part of what we're, we keep trying to, to reiterate um, uh, time and time again is that this is where people live. I mean, anxiety is not something um, foreign to anyone, um, and as you so sort of well described, I mean, even in Jesus' time. And the, the the reality of life and the existence of suffering, you know, brings into question the great question that confronts everyone, is God, if he exists, is he for us or against yeah. us? Like, this is the question, you know? This is the... Uh, again, to the Fight Club, you know, there's, there's a line in this movie uh, where he says, uh, alluded to yesterday, you know, you got to start to wonder, you, you need to come to grips with the fact that God does exist and he just doesn't seem to like you very much. You know, that was the, um, yes. and that's actually yeah. where people live, is it the existence of suffering, particularly for Christians, you know, this this, this seeming, um, I mean, it, it's where you get on the sort of the, the atheist chat room, so I don't suggest that, but it's the, you know, the, the seeming obvious um, d- d- Discrepancy: the loving God who loves the world and is all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty, and yet the existence of suffering and evil. And the way to reconcile that seems to be impossible. And yet when you come to this place where the promise um, supersedes our will and then establishes an altogether different um, sort of soundtrack for our lives, as it were, and then you go back to the New Testament and you see that the promise from Jesus himself, much less the early church, was that the suffering would be a mark of his disciples in the world. And that is something that we, don't, we can't avoid and we don't and none of us get away from. And yet, in light of the promise, it becomes this counterintuitive fulfillment of the actual gospel itself, and so I'd, it's, it's hard to explain. It's like describing a butterfly in flight, but I, I think about my own life um, in, in the, the way that this sort of light switched on, and it had to do with, with uh, reading about Luther and his wrestling with the first commandment, you know, you will have no other gods but me, this is a very frightening thing. You know, don't have any other gods. Don't be, um, you know, if you have other gods, get rid of them. You know, the idol, heart is an idol factory, all these things. And you spend this time sort of cowering, rightly so, under this booming voice from yeah. Sinai. You will have no other gods. And then all of a sudden you realize, in light of the promise through, given to us through faith and you know, through the resurrected Lord, that this is, this is, this is a statement of fact yeah. for my people. You will have no other gods but me.
1: You will have 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 no other gods.
0: gods. Like, don't worry. Like, you're going to be tempted and you're going to, you know, you're going to, but I got you, you know, and I'm going to let the leash out far, you know, at times, but I'm going to yank you back, and that might be a little disturbing, but um, you you will have no other gods. And that changes everything. And I talk about this the way I describe it to my congregants is it's this statement I'm coming to get you. Just read that. Well, depending on who's saying that, that's either the best news or the creepiest, worst news you've ever heard, you know, <laughs> I mean, right. or I'm, I'm coming to kiss you, you know, that's something like, that's either the most beautiful, sweet, tell-me-again-grandpa thing you've ever heard, or it's something that keeps you up at night with a gun next to your pillow, <laughs> and um, that's the difference that mm-hmm. the promise makes. That's the law and the gospel. That's what faith is, because faith in ourselves is simply a um, attempt to justify against the voice of the unknown speaker saying, "I'm coming to get you," but faith in Christ is the confident hope that, or, or the confidence, you know, the, the, that that He has spoken this from beyond the grave. That I'm coming to get you, and you know, through the valley of the shadow of death. And I find that that's the the beginnings of the way to to see the actual sort of the where the, this hits the the ground floor of people's hearts, you know, it's not a jargon, it's not an argument, it's not a fight, it's not a, you know, a, a Facebook sort of argument that we get into because we're, we we want to win points, but it begins to actually unlock people's fear and anxiety in this cage that they're in and sets them free. I mean, I remember you saying that once about, you know, now you're free to to move about the cabin, you know? yes. I'll never forget that. I love that <laughs> that's, that's right. the word of absolution, is that, you know, you're the, the captain's voice. Yeah, you don't have on. to stay
1: locked in with your seatbelt. That's right. So yeah, right. you're free to walk about. That's yes, exactly well, right. that
0: brings it. That's, that's a great question. Uh, that's a segue into this oft-heard objection to this sort of theology that we are preaching, is that this freedom, you know, this, this, this idea that, that people will be too free, that there will be somehow that we are promoting or allowing for, um, uh, you know, sort of licentiousness or libertinism, or, or you know, whatever the case may be. How do you, how do we, how, how do you respond when you hear something? Well,
1: like I respond uh, by saying that uh, it's, it's impossible, yeah. since what uh, God is actually doing, as I was just describing, uh, when Christ comes, is not give you choices to make with your free will, but to remove your free will, which of course is the issue here. Now. Uh, when, when, when I first tell people uh, what Christ is doing uh, is coming like a surgeon who now realizes that you've got a problem and a cancer, and the cancer is what you think is the best part of you. <laughs> My choice mechanism. Uh, the thing that allows me to make these choices. And after all, what good is it to be an American if you can't make choices? Uh, don't you have Costco down here? <laughs> uh, or some uh, other... Ba- well, you've got Walmart and everything, so you go into Walmart and you make uh, just thousands of choices. This seems to be the most important and best part of, uh, of who I am. And Christ comes and says, that's what actually needs to be removed. Mm-hmm. And uh, do- does so uh, now in such a way that initially, of course, uh, we are most fearful that the, the best thing of, of us is, uh, is going to be taken, removed, and we're now going to be forced to do things mm. against our desires and wills. But now our Heavenly Father knows precisely what it is that we need, uh, precisely uh, aside from our own choices and desires, and bestows and gives these things freely to us. The fear uh, for anybody receiving an absolution, then even for themselves, is I may misuse this. I've just been freed from my seatbelt. I can wander around, but maybe I'll do something stupid, like go over and open the uh, hatch door and the uh, and the and then kill everybody uh, in the airplane. Maybe that's what I'm going to do, and maybe how that, that maybe that's going to work that way. Because you actually know yourself well enough not to trust yourself with this sort of thing. And so you wonder uh, if uh, the uh, Holy Spirit now, who is the one who will actually replace your free will, is going to make the same kind of mistakes, Hmm. uh, direct you, move you in the wrong kind of way. But here it is uh, that the gift of the Spirit now is such that we don't have to fear that this is going to happen. When you are made a good tree, good fruit will come from it. Mm. You don't. uh, The tree does not say to itself in the spring, "Last year I did not produce very well. Uh, This year I am going to really try, (laughs) Uh, and I am going to exercise my free uh, uh, orchard will." Uh, and I am going to work really hard at producing these. Christ is just telling us this is what will come out of you because I will produce it in you. Now, uh, you know, when we're listening to Carrie, we we can start thinking about what we mean by the fruits, the spiritual gifts. She's been given uh, a wonderful spiritual gift of humor in the midst of trial. This This doesn't come all the time. And some of us get more of it uh, and some of us get less of it. But when you hear it, it's a pure joy because now you've got somebody in the, in the midst of the confession of, of uh, trial, difficulty, testing, and so on, uh, who has been given the gift by the Spirit of humor in the midst of it, which is only possible because she knows what the end is. Uh, comedy and humor has to know that the end is good. They are going to kiss in the end. It, uh, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, it would your life would never be a Hallmark movie. But now with the Holy <laughs> Spirit, it is. I mean, you're actually going to end up with the person, and you're going to kiss right at the end, and it's going to be wonderful. How do you like this? Uh, but not, not not yet. You will not see it or feel that yet. And the, uh, the humor and joy that can come out of that is a real gift. This is a fruit that comes out. Uh, you don't uh, b- produce it yourself, uh, and uh, you don't um, manufacture these things out of your own uh, power and will. And uh, here goes the Holy Spirit who promises that you will do many good works And the main obstacle to you doing good works once you have been freed is to remove your own consciousness about your good works. So, as Paul says in in Colossians, you will not know the good works that you do. You won't do this. Uh, And nevertheless, we trust, in fact, that this will come out without law, without uh, a decision to make, or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean... Yeah, I'm just keep talking, please. No. <laughs> uh, I'm going to grab a prayer book real quick because I, I have something to say about all of that from our particular tradition. But um, before that, um, you know, I think that the, the, what I've run up into when I get into the objections to this is, generally speaking, two, two types of objections. One, it's somebody who's been hurt by someone's freedom. And they're afraid that if they went back, and they have them under control now, you know, like you, you hurt me once, and now we have a sort of a um, house arrest around you, you know, in our relationship. And if I go back and tell my spouse, my friend, my so-and-so that they are truly and totally forgiven of this, then my thought is that they will do it again. Yes. And that's a, th- that's a real thing. I mean, that's a real—and I think that's where, you know, the sensitivity to this, um, uh, you know, is something hard— I've, for me, it's been a hard one uh, because, you know, initially, uh, you know, when we learn this, you, you sort of start firing at people, um, and I think it's, it's important to, to realize that this is the, the great fear. Because we know so, so little of anything else, the fear of genuine freedom is, um, in many people's minds, uh, actually something to be avoided. I mean, even yeah. the, the protests, they want freedom and choice, but in reality, it's we want we feel perfectly fine with our freedom but don't give it to my dad he had too much freedom you know or my um or my or my first wife or my my boss seems to have too much freedom in making me feel you know uh, marginalized and so, you know this is the uh, this is part of the problem and i think um it, it, and also the other objection or, or the, the way the other objection i run into is sort of more classic in the sense that someone feels that they have reached a level of Sort of um, attained a level of of self control that um, you know is to be admired and desired, and so other people need to aspire to that. Um, and so I, that's only that to say is that I feel like the the I keep coming back to, and you have taught me uh, this over many years, is that the 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 reality of the human person before the law is manifests in a number of different ways, but in actuality, it's always the same. Like what we spoke about yesterday, it's the fearful creature, line and weight of being hit again, you know, hit, um, and I think that that's the, the picture that we are, um, you know, that I want to have burned into my, um, sort of retinas. So when I see people, regardless of what they look like or what they're saying, even, or what they're, they're doing is that that's actually the person to whom I have been sent in some way, shape, or form to, to give this word of, of freedom. Um, yeah. and, and cause that's what, when, I mean, you when people hear their free will, has been taken away, you know, backs get up immediately. I mean, Ferdy, yes. you know, your friend, our yes. hero, blessed memory, You um, <laughs> said this funny thing once where he said, I get invited to talk about all sorts of things. Uh, all, and I sign up, I'll accept any invitation to talk on any topic, because all I ever actually talk about is the bound will. <laughs> and so he said, because he said, and when you talk about this, you are getting all of the juices flowing, you know, people's own choices, the choices they made, the choices made against them, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, his evil, suffering, death, predestination, election, eternity, everything hinges on this. And it's rightly understood to be a terrifying conjecture, like we said, outside of the person and work of Christ for you. You know, and this is where I wanted to get to our, uh, we're in an Episcopal church, and we are, um, many of us are ordained in the Anglican tradition, and this this is often seen as something foreign to us, and this just is a moment of personal privilege, uh, because I get, um, having done a PhD in primarily Lutheran studies, and then, um, and then preaching and teaching in an Anglican church, I'm often accused of, uh, I'm often invited to just go become a Lutheran, uh, is, what, um, is what often <laughs> happens. And um, I wanted to point out one, for those of you who do write one, you know that Cranmer's uh, exit prayers, post communion prayer, prayer uh, prays that we will go into the world to do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. Well, that doesn't sound much like a God who doesn't know the future or who has given us the free will to not do these works. He's simply, we are praying that we will go into the world um, to do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us
1: to walk in. And I'm looking for the historical yeah, in, in yeah. Ephesians, the, uh, the good works are actually prepared ahead of time and you walk into them. And this is uh, part of what, uh, what we even mean by uh, God uh, foreknowing all uh, and, uh, uh, and even uh, and uh, uh, so Why is this? Why have you found that this is
0: such a. I mean, I have a variety of thoughts, but you are the hot button. Like, why is this that which, which you know, dare not speak its name? <laughs> I mean, in many theological circles, like, this is the issue. This, when, you, when you said Bondage that God Lord. takes away your will, like, I mean, I won't speak for everyone, but there's a couple of people in here who, you know, stiffened and. Cold sweat. I mean, because this is not what you talk about.
1: Primary uh, thing that the that uh, that the Enlightenment of the 18th century promised us was that that you would be free when you were no longer being told by somebody from the outside what to do. Mm. That was called heteronomy, and it meant that you were getting another person outside, hetero, who is telling you what the law is. And where do you suppose they uh, assumed that they were getting somebody outside themselves telling them what to do more often than not? It was first in, in their parents. So what's the first thing that you have to do with your parents? Well, get rid of them. Rebel. <laughs> uh, that's the first thing you have to do, and that's what we now mean by teenage life and so on this is this is what they're doing throwing off heteronomy and the next thing you have to do is stop going and listening to a preacher that's the worst thing you can do because the preacher is telling you from the outside here is what you ought to do and I don't need to take it now what do you put in its place instead of heteronomy you now have autonomy and what is it to be autonomous. It is to be a law unto myself. How do you like that? My free will is the power to be a law unto myself. And this is what we were told way back in the Enlightenment and up to the present time is going to be true freedom for you. Instead of doing what somebody else tells me to do, what do I do? I do what I tell myself to do. But lo and behold, what do you uh, find out about yourself and what you tell yourself? You're actually a worse Moses to yourself than anybody else. (laughs) You're the one who is more critical of yourself than anybody else. You're the one who is harsher on yourself than anyone else. You're the one whose law is higher, the bar is higher than anyone else. And heteronomy itself becomes absolute self-destruction and then ends uh, with uh, what, what, we, uh, what we were uh, hearing in, in a couple of your talks, with existential dread, yeah. which is that I really do tell myself uh, who I am, what I am, what the law is, and uh, I cannot get out of this particular prison I'm in. Uh, I've made my own self my own prison and I can't get out of it and uh, people have no idea what to do with autonomy Mm -hmm. and of course the answer is not uh, to go back to heteronomy Uh, it is now actually to hear the gospel which tells you where the law ends but it also tells you where the law does not end this gets back to your observation what I'm worried about uh, people who, are, uh, who, who, who operate too freely and in my family or among friends, I forgive them, and then they turn around and do the same thing again. And they are recidivists. Right. They keep going back and repeating the same problem. Now Jesus uh, actually tells us two things about this. The first thing is that you have to recognize that with any person, starting with yourself, when you have been given a promise, first and finally in your baptism, and then subsequently uh, these promises are reiterated to you over and over again. You cease being one person who is trying to improve herself, and you become two people. One is the one who has received the uh, promise and is free. This is uh, what we call the new creature. Uh, This is... Uh, Isaiah 43, behold I do a new thing, Uh, do you not see it spring forth? This is a new creature, but the old creature hangs on. Luther used to like to say, the old creature will hang around your neck like an old bag of maggots that you're carrying around wherever you go. And not only will this old bag of maggots be there, but you will introduce it to other people <laughs> as if this bag of maggots is really something uh, and really significant uh, and is really going somewhere and doing something and so on. But here we know uh, what Paul means after he gives us the gospel and tells us that Jesus is the mercy seat who removes the law entirely from us. And uh, then he turns around and says... Do we now remove the law? No, we do not remove the law, but we put it in its proper place. And the proper place now is this. When you have people who are operating with you as old creatures in the world, you do actually go by the rule that there you use forgiveness once, not again. But that's the old creature speaking to the old creature and saying, I don't keep giving you the same opportunity over and over again. Here is where we actually draw lines and boundaries and so on. But Jesus also said, when you actually now are speaking to the new creature or need to create the new creature where there's only an old one, then, the, uh, then he gives a different advice. How often do you need to go and give forgiveness to a recidivist who keeps repeating over and over again? This is the seven question of the, of the disciples. Yes. How, how often do we apply this? Uh, is this particular one applied only once? And here he says, seven times 70. Uh, and here you do keep applying this over and over again. So when you're dealing with the old creature, uh, you use the law and you limit uh, but when you're dealing with a new creature now, you, uh, you, you address them and uh, give them absolution 70 times 7. And to learn the difference between these things uh, is really to learn how it is to become an expert user of the office of the keys. Which one you're taking out to bind, don't do this again. Which one uh, you're taking out to actually uh, release or free.
0: Amen. Well, Dr. Paulson, we could talk. Um, I could talk to you for hours, uh, and we're so uh, thankful for you and your ministry and work. And I do hope um, for those of you who are new to Mockingbird or new to this concept that you'll uh, dig into some of the things on the website and some of the other. Um, it, it, his first um, conference that he came to, as I talked about yesterday, nine years ago now, is on the web, and it's life-changing. I mean, and I'm not alone in that. And in every subsequent one, I mean, you know. If And uh, our heart in all of this, as we conclude, is that you will begin to hear these great concepts of people laboring under the law and, you know, timidly at first and maybe with great gusto and go to seminary and become a preacher (laughs) possibly, uh, become people who who preach um, something that the world does not know to lost and hurting burdened people, that there's actually a um, you know, as we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, as we have been loved by God through the propitiation of His Son, as John says, we now know what love is. And um, so, just as, as I won't get into, I could give you a whole lecture. I'll send you a link to the um, the Lutheran roots of the prayer book. Uh, but I do want to just point out one thing: as as you go to church this Sunday, perhaps in the Episcopal church, is Cranmer knew this, and he knew it so much that he altered the the, the liturgy at the point of giving people communion with very two. Particular words that are um, all important, for you, that this is the body and blood of Christ given for you. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And that's a point in the service where, despite how terrible often the preaching might be, uh, myself included, um, nevertheless, that sermon will continue to preach, and that's the promise upon which you can hang your heart um, and will continue to camel carry you like a camel through uh, the, the desert mm-hmm. of your life. So thanks Thank to you God. Baby. Thank you, Dr. Paul. You've been great hosts. Thank
1: you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>